Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Community Library. I'm your host Ngauri Rice. This episode of the Community Library is not endorsed, sanctioned, or in any other way supported directly or indirectly by Warner Brothers Entertainment, the Harry Potter book publishers, or J.K. Rowling and her representatives. All Harry Potter characters, names, and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated and Harry Potter publishing rights copyright of J.K.R. Welcome everyone to April. I hope you are all doing well and staying safe and staying inside. It's a new month and with a new month comes a new theme. So this month's theme is fantasy. I thought it would be appropriate um, as I think we all need a little bit of escapism right now. And as I'm sure you've noticed from the title of this episode, I could not do a whole month around the theme of fantasy and not do an episode on Harry Potter. So Here it is. I am what is considered a Harry Potter purist. I read the books before I saw the movies and I continue to reread the books so that I don't forget important details. And this isn't all for nothing. My sister and I won Harry Potter pub trivia against 20 other teams. But I suffer from a problem that I think many Harry Potter readers suffer from. When I reread the books now, I can't help picturing their corresponding scenes in the movie adaptation. When I read Snape's dialogue, I hear Alan Rickman's dramatic pauses. And when I picture Hermione, I picture Emma Watson with her curly but not exactly bushy brown hair. Thankfully, the scenes that didn't make it into the movie remain completely untouched in my mind. They are exactly how I imagined them when I first read the books when I was eight or nine. Ron's face is a little more square and Harry is a lot taller and Hermione's hair is much darker and frizzier. And I think maybe that's why Order of the Phoenix is my favorite book to read now, because there is so much content that didn't make it into the film. I like to reread the original story every so often just to remind myself of where the magic all began. But I'm definitely not the only one who experiences this issue. I did a poll on the Community Library Instagram and 74% of you said that you picture scenes from the film in your mind when you read the books. That is such a big percentage. There's no denying that the brand of Harry Potter TM, whether that be the movies or the theme parks or the video games or the merchandise, that brand has become just as significant, if not even more significant than the original story of the boy who slept in the cupboard under the stairs. Is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, For me, I'm an avid reader of the original series and I love all of the Wizarding World TM stuff. It it heightens the magic of the movies for me. But what are the effects of this brand in relation to the books and also people who haven't read the books? Before I discuss this issue further, I need to talk about just how big Wizarding World TM is. 
So I decided to split this into two categories, canon and non-canon. Canon includes all texts that contribute to the official story and universe as Harry Potter, as they are written and approved by J.K. Rowling. So let's start with the canon category. First of all, of course, we have the original seven books. They are Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, and Deathly Hallows. Next, we have the companion novels, which were written by J.K. Rowling herself, but are this weird kind of canon within a canon situation because these books exist within the canon of the Harry Potter story as well as contributing to the canon of the Wizarding World itself. These books are Tales of Beetle the Bard, Quidditch Through the Ages, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Now let's look at the movies next. Now it's, it's kind of hard to decide whether to classify the film adaptations of the books as canon or not. Because if you classify them both as canon, then you'll have contradictions because some elements in the books were changed in the movies and some of them were left out completely. However, for the sake of this categorization, I hereby declare that the movies are more canon than not. So therefore, the Warner Brothers film adaptations of the Harry Potter series are in this canon category. Next up, we have the two Fantastic Beasts films. They are Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Now, this subcategory is also expanding because we can expect three more films to be added to this franchise. And finally, we have the most debated work within the canon, I think, and that is the play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. J.K. Rowling does consider this canon. Um, however, many fans have rejected this as canon. Uh, it's a point of contention within the fandom. Now let's move on to the non-canon section of the Wizarding World. Now this category includes um, everything that isn't canon. <laughs> To begin with, we've got the theme parks slash attractions. In North America, there are two parks called the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. They are located at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida and Universal Studios in Los Angeles, California. There is another Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Japan and it is located at Universal Studios in Osaka. Finally, in the UK, there is the Warner Brothers Studio Tour, The Making of Harry Potter, which is located at Leavesden Studios in London. Incidentally, uh, this is where we filmed Spider-Man Far From Home. So every day when we drove into work, I would go through the gates at Leavesden Studios and see a big poster of Harry Potter on the side of one of the studios. And yes, I did go to the studio tour and yes, it was incredible. I loved it. The next kind of subsection I have in this category is licensed games. So we've got the original video games that were produced by EA Games, and these video games were based on the films 1 through 8. There are also the Lego Harry Potter video games, which take you through years 1 to 7 at Hogwarts, and these were produced by Lego and WB Games. Other games include Harry Potter Quidditch World Cup, which is also EA Games, and the Wonder Book Book of Spells and Wonder Book Book of Potions. They are both produced by Sony and J.K. Rowling. A few years ago, Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling launched their own Wizarding World-specific game label called Port Key Games. The video games under this label include the mobile games Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery and Harry Potter Wizards Unite. Now let's talk about official online platforms. At the moment, there is only one official source of Harry Potter content, and that is wizardingworld.com, formerly known as Pottermore. 
Pottermore was launched in 2011, and I remember it very well. In the original Pottermore, you could visit Diagon Alley and buy a wand. You attended Hogwarts and you were sorted into your house. And then you could experience the story in an interactive way and collect potions, ingredients, and duel other members. In 2015, Pottermore was redesigned and it was a tragedy. (laughs) The interactive gaming element was scrapped and it became more of a blog. In 2019, Pottermore was shut down in favor of WizardingWorld.com, which migrated a lot of the Pottermore content to the new site. Now, WizardingWorld.com not only encompasses the Harry Potter books, but also Fantastic Beasts and The Cursed Child. Next up, I want to talk about the official Harry Potter conventions or events. Now, even though these conventions are official, as far as I can tell, they are free. So I won't be including them in my discussion of the brand and how the brand sells products. But I thought I should mention them here anyway. This one was a bit tricky to research um, and I don't know much about fan conventions or events. So it was hard for me to figure out which ones were officially Wizarding World TM and which ones weren't. As far as I can tell, there are only two official clubs or conventions and they are Harry Potter Book Night which is hosted by Bloomsbury and the new official Harry Potter fan club which was just announced and that fan club exists on wizardingworld.com and it promises quote unique fan club experiences and opportunities. Finally the biggest category I think is merchandise. Harry Potter merch is so extensive it would take me literally years to sift through the internet and find every single licensed merchandising product. Anything you can think of that could have the Harry Potter logo on it, they've made it and they're selling it. But I want to point out that merch also has subcategories of canon and non-canon. The canon merch consists of items that you see in the movies, like wands or robes or Weasley jumpers. And then the non-canon merch consists of items that are normal, except they have the Harry Potter logo branded on them, like Harry Potter water bottles or socks or key rings. There are two things that make Harry Potter merch really unique and therefore really marketable. The first is that a lot of the items are not only canon, but also Wizarding World specific. I'm talking about magical objects that didn't exist in our world until they were designed and created for the films. These are things like the Time Turner and the Deluminator and the Rememberall. The fact that these items didn't exist before and were specifically designed by a team of designers makes these items very special and unique and also more expensive. (laughs) The second thing that makes the merch unique and marketable is the idea of House Pride. Now, I don't think JK Rowling could have known when she wrote about the Four Houses how great a marketing strategy it is to sell the same item, but in four different house colors. There's an episode from one of my favorite podcasts called Witch Please, and I'll link the episode in the show notes. And they talk all about the branding of Harry Potter and they get in a branding and marketing expert to talk about it. And there's a section where she brings up this idea that marketing something in house colors personally connects with the audience and with the buyer and that's why it's such a genius marketing strategy selling gryffindor themed items personally connects with the fans who are gryffindors and it's the same for all the other houses as well 
Ravenclaws will buy Ravenclaw-themed tea towels just because they want to show their house pride. Yes, I bought a Ravenclaw-themed tea towel. If you want to know more about merchandise and branding and um, how that is related to the Harry Potter world, then I would highly suggest that you check out that episode because it's super cool. So now I think I've covered the extent of the Wizarding World TM brand. But I want to add a small note here and say that this just encompasses the official licensed stuff. There are also many other elements to the Harry Potter fandom, like fan conventions, fan art, and fan fiction, that I couldn't even begin to discuss. Maybe that's for another episode. But all of this is to bring me to the argument that the brand of Wizarding World TM has eclipsed the original story. With edition after edition, it's becoming less and less about the story of the boy who lived in the cupboard under the stairs. And I think majority of this is due to the fact that all of the merchandising comes straight from the film adaptations. You can buy the talking shrunken head from the night bus, an item that exists purely in the film adaptation. But there is no Peeves-related merch to be seen. Peeves was a poltergeist character who was cut from the film series. You can buy a stuffed Dobby the house elf, but not Winky, who was another house elf who appeared in book four, but never in the film. Not only do the films dictate what products they sell and what they don't, but also the design of the products. For example, all Ravenclaw merch is in the colors blue and silver, a detail that was changed for the films, unlike the blue and bronze that is described in the book. Now, I don't understand how copyright law works, and after much searching on the internet, I still don't really know who owns the Harry Potter merchandising rights. So I don't even know if Warner Brothers is allowed to make merch exclusive to the book. However, I don't think that's particularly relevant here in my argument, because either way, book-related merch doesn't exist on the same level as movie-related merch. And this is largely because movies are a visual medium, and so is marketing. It's much easier to market an item with a recognizable actor's face on it, rather than a quote from a book that only some people have read, or an illustration of a character that doesn't have a universally accepted and known appearance. And Harry Potter isn't the only one. Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones are both very successful book series that were adapted into a film and TV series respectively. And the merch for both these franchises is almost exclusively linked to their adaptations. Another element that comes into play here is consumerism. There is no doubt that all of this merchandising promotes a consumerist culture. It feeds this desire to own things for the sake of owning them. I am very guilty of this. I own two wands and a time turner, which do nothing except sit there on my shelf and look pretty, but they make me happy. <laughs> Whatever the CEOs of the Harry Potter theme parks and video games and merchandising companies say, they don't create all of this stuff to allow us to experience the story in a new and immersive way. It's mostly about monetary gain. Otherwise, it wouldn't all be so damn expensive. <laughs> My point is that all of it seems so very far removed from the books as a whole, almost as if they've forgotten that it was based on a book at all. At the Warner Brothers Studio Tour in London, there were more Gryffindor-themed iPhone cases for sale at the gift shop than there were actual copies of the book. But I want to propose that, in many cases, it's been taken one step further. That it's not about the books anymore, nor is it about the actual story. 
To experience the wider Wizarding World TM, you don't even have to have seen all the movies. Maybe you've only seen the first one and half of the fourth one when it was playing on TV. You don't need to know the story to go on Flight of the Hippogriff roller coaster at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios. You might enjoy it more and feel the significance of it if you have read the book and seen the movie, but either way, you're going on a roller coaster. You're going to have fun. The only part of the extended Harry Potter universe that requires prior knowledge from this story specifically is the Cursed Child play. Everything else I mentioned in my extended Wizarding World list does not require any prior reading or watching to understand or enjoy. This makes the story not only more accessible, but also more marketable. And in the case of theme parks and the video games and all related merchandising, of course, it's all about appealing to a wide market to bring in the big bucks. Of all the people who go to Universal Studios, let's say only 10% of them have read Harry Potter. The other 90% can still go to the theme park and buy a wand or Bertie Bott's Every Flavor Beans or a Slytherin scarf and they'll still have a great time. The fact that everything is branded with the Harry Potter logo brings in a big audience, but the added fact that you don't need to know the story to understand and enjoy the theme park brings in an even bigger audience. I don't think the brand of the Wizarding World actively discourages audience from reading the book, but it doesn't actively encourage reading either. Why would you read the books when the world is handed to you on a silver platter and you can enjoy it just the same? Through the movies, video games, theme parks, and merchandise, you can learn about house points, horcruxes, and the sorting hat without ever reading a word of the original text. And with that, I think, comes a loss of subtlety. We lose the delicate foreshadowing that J.K. Rowling planted back in book one that makes the reveals in book seven all the more exciting. We lose the subtlety of wizard and house elf relations that demonstrates the flaws and injustices in the wizarding world. We forget that Neville's parents were tortured so intensely that when he visits them in hospital, they don't even know who he is. And that's a heartbreaking moment that really rounds out Neville's character. We forget that Hermione's worst fear, as demonstrated by the bogger that she faces in her exams, is failing her schoolwork, thus highlighting her intense desire to fit in in the wizarding world. Of course, there is no way to get all of this information across in the various facets of the Wizarding World brand, but the story of Harry Potter teaches its audience so many valuable lessons about friendship and bravery and what it means to be good or evil, and I think it's a shame that it seems like it's getting lost in all of the noise. Now, if I were writing a persuasive essay on this topic for a class, I would probably argue that the Wizarding World brand eclipsing the original stories is an inherently bad thing because it promotes a laziness about reading the original story. However, this isn't school, so I can do what I want and say that I know that this issue is a lot more complicated than that. I have no right to get upset about how people enjoy a story, whether that be through the books or the films or the video games or the theme parks. It goes against what I believe in to say that the Wizarding World brand should be changed to benefit only those of us who have read the books because we're the, quote, real fans. I think it's an absolutely wonderful thing that this story is so widespread and accessible. However, I do think it's important to acknowledge that none of this would exist without the magic of books and storytelling. 
None of this would exist if not for the imagination of a writer and the power and passion of young readers across the world. In a world where media has become so quick and easy to consume, I think it's good to remember that most of this media came from the creativity of one person who sat down, picked up a pen, and wrote. Think of all the big franchises out there today that have brands that are just as big, if not bigger, than the Harry Potter one. Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones were books first, books that drew in such a big audience of readers that studios bought the film and TV adaptation rights. All Marvel films came from a team of writers and artists creating comic books, as did all DC films. Even Star Wars was written by just one guy, George Lucas, who sat down and decided that he wanted to write a space opera. Whether you experience the magic that is the universe of Harry Potter through the films or the video games or the theme parks or the merchandise or maybe all of the above, it's all valid and wonderful and magical. But I think the written word has so much power and you never know what new meaning you'll find when you read the same story for a second or a third or a hundredth time. Every single word in the Harry Potter books exists for a reason, to round out the characters and the story and the magic. And that's the joy of storytelling. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly had fun planning it and writing it. If you'd like to tell me what you thought of this episode, don't hesitate to tweet me at Angowry Rice or send me a DM on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library. You can also use the hashtag community library if you want to show me what you're reading or if you want to share a book review of a book I talked about on the podcast, whatever you like. I want to take this moment to tell you about some really nice messages that I received. Uh, Stephanie Blythe on Instagram messaged me she says she loves reading but she sometimes falls out of it because a lot of people that she knows aren't really into reading but that this account and this podcast really inspire her so thank you Stephanie for messaging it really made my day to hear that you are getting back into reading I also want to shout out Olivia.Kagan who sent me a message saying that she's a fan of Spider-Man and she says it's really exciting to see actors that are her age who are also book nerds, just like she is. Um, so thank you so much, Olivia, for being a fan of both the podcast and also of Spider-Man. I'm so glad that we both share a love of reading. Just a reminder that this month the theme is fantasy, and so the book we will be discussing is Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters by Rick Riordan. This is the second book in the Percy Jackson series, and it's a really fun and lighthearted book. It's a quick escapist read, so I hope you read along with us so you can join in the discussion later on this month. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an upload. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, as well as running the Community Library Instagram, I also have a blog, which is www.angowrieslibrary.wordpress.com. There you can find full transcriptions of the episodes, plus extra links and resources. I suggest that you check out the blog post for this episode because I'll have a whole list of links to articles that I used in my research. The podcast artwork is designed by Ashley Ronning. You can look up more of her work at ashleyronning.com or you can go to helio-press.com. That's dash the symbol. Once again, thank you for listening and I will talk to you next week. Bye.